that is uh, one of my favorite Talking Heads songs, Life During Wartime. Amazing. <laughs> Welcome to Hello, Hello. Jason, I don't think I've had you on, have I? First time, I'm so honored. <laughs> You're getting amped up. Do you do you like the, the Talking Heads? Uh, I don't really follow the Talking Heads, I'll be honest. I'm more of a uh, Baby Shark type guy. Oh, my Lord. I guess that speaks to your present situation in life. But the um, that song, I never really fully thought about back in the day. And um, it's about this this dude who's heading off to war in a in a musical kind of way. And it has this really good line. So uh, this ain't no party. This ain't no disco. This ain't no fooling around. No time for dancing or lovey-dovey. I ain't got time for that now. Trans a message to the receiver. Hope for an answer someday. I got three passports, a couple of visas. You don't even know my real name. It's awesome. <laughs> Everything's ready to roll. <laughs> well, I wanted to get you on, and I wanted to talk about... Um, an email thread that we bounced around over the last uh, five or six weeks. I, we didn't bounce it around to that many people, and we didn't bounce it around that much. But the heart of it was so important, and um, we're doing it. Yes, this is the subject of wartime. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, we uh, when you joined, so. I, th I guess, you know, the, the folks who are, are the uh, loyal listeners of Hello, Hello um, are, can be the general public, and there may be some, but uh, it's a lot of our colleagues at Notel, and everyone who's on it uh, that I've had is a uh, Notel person, and so maybe one good thing to do is just, like, set you up in case not everybody has uh, met you and had to deal with you yet um, in the stuff that you do at Notel and how you got here and 42 floors and, and all that stuff. You want to lay it out? Um, uh, I've run four venture-backed companies, two have failed miserably, one kind of succeeded, and one was 42 Floors. And 42 Floors, we did Y Combinator way back in 2012. We were one of the first prop tech companies. We put office space on the internet with the vision that it should be easier to search for an office space. And uh, about eight years in, I met you, and you had a vision that said not only should it be easier to search for office space, but actually all of it should be easier. The whole thing, start to finish, should be easier. And Notel bought 42 floors. And now my team has all come over and we still have 42 floors, which makes it easier to search for office space. And we also run a department of Notel called Data Operations. And our goal is to make all the stuff that goes on with Notel, all the people, all the systems, all work together well. Um, because to actually make an office be easy, you actually have this huge team that all needs to work together in a way that our industry, commercial real estate, has never successfully had people work together. So the, uh, what I do at Notel is really an extension of what I'd been doing for, for the eight years prior, which is just trying to make it so that customers don't have to experience the pain of all these different things from salespeople to brokers to legal to finance to uh, project architects to project managers to external contractors, all these people having to work together well is why commercial real estate is so hard and Notel makes all that easy. So we had this meeting of the minds a couple of years ago and um, we did this deal and uh, you, you've brought your people and technology into the product group and, and you guys uh, build a whole bunch of stuff. We call it data operations, but it touches a lot of different things. And over this last couple of years, I think that probably when we spoke about what we would do together and why it would make sense uh, to combine Notel and 42, um, we had this like pretty expansive vision of all these different things that were possible. And while it was expansive, it also had a bunch of specifics. Probably every specific thing that we talked about is not correct, and we ended up changing it. But the expansive nature of it, of like using data, putting information about buildings in front of customers or in front of owners, using that to absorb more properties into the marketplace platform, making things move through faster so you can, quote unquote, click on a page and get an office done. Like, we are getting there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, actually, I would say that all of the specifics, um, we, we kind of sprinted past them and found like really interesting, deep 
maybe more way more important pieces of it. The overall general thing was an agreement on where the customer lies in all this, which is like we'll do all this because customers will love it. Like that was th that was the impetus. It's not some super complicated industry structure where you have users and then you have customers who are different groups of people. We like have customers and we want them to be really happy. Um, and like that, <laughs> the crazy. 42 floors team <laughs> was like really drawn to that simplicity. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and I guess we did sprint past, but I mean, we've ended up building, um, you've had a big hand with your colleagues in, um, in the creation of Flow, which mm -hmm. at a certain point was, you know, a kind of optimistic conjecture that you could have a totally end-to-end -end digital workflow from the opportunity through the docs signing and, and managing the portfolio. And I remember it was about a year ago at this time, maybe a little more than a year ago at this time, that we were starting to trial it on a handful of like real estate managers in a couple of, of the cities. And we were just sort of fingers crossed, right? <laughs> and now we're a year later. Uh, we do deals in the fraction of the time. Every real estate person around the world is on the platform. And properties far in excess of, of those we ever touched in the past are also on the platform now. We're like absorbing the world into, into Fluff. Yeah, it's really interesting. Flow is an app internal only to Notel and unique to Notel that like allows us to have all the different people who touch a lease all work on it at the same time with all the same data, without stepping on each other's toes, without waiting for one step to be finished before you start the next. So it's a simultaneous workflow process. And actually, uh, I just checked uh, yesterday, our very first cohort, the first 15 properties that used it, just to see how they're doing. <laughs> I did it. Was was this a good result in the end? You know, separate from whether people used it and said they liked it. And actually, the first cohort that went through Flow has uh, overall higher profitability than uh, No Tell Norm from that time. And I don't know why. Actually, I would like to be able to answer. Uh, I, I'll, I'm take not gonna I'll take it. I'll take it. The correlation is fine. I'll, I'll take it. But uh, lower vacancy and higher margin, but, but perhaps most importantly, which might be what drives it, is greater speed from the point at which Notel engages in a space until it's got a tenant already moved in. And that may be like the thread that just continues to pull at great lengths, which is the faster we all work together, the less vacancy, the less money wasted, the happier clients who move in faster much is more profitability like it, it may just be speed is actually one of the great threads to pull on in this in this company it is powerful it is powerful and it's actually put us in a position for example the last six months to see a lot of things that are soft behaviors around uh, property that we're pushing through that can predict its success we didn't used to have a, a way to document and record the differences in our behaviors on, on sales and marketing and, and early demand generation on stuff. And, and now we can see it better and we can link it together. And, and it's going to be actually a big, uh, a big pivot point to the stuff we do in the coming, coming 12 months. So there's yeah. Flow. And then uh, there's, there's a bunch of other stuff too, right? I mean, be, because while Flow may be a big sort of product that people open and log into internally, um, the, like the, the data is everywhere, right? I mean, it touches all these different other federated apps. So like Atlas has been hugely transformative and, and that's been done by uh, Sanjeev's uh, adjacent product operation. And that's really powerful in, in, in getting the property in front of the customer and then understanding the customer and linking what the customers want and move them along. Brokers are, are other partners. Um, but I presume there's other standalone products. And, and, that and, I, you've and I would about. say inventory is as big or bigger than flow. Inventory for Notel says that the process of building out and marketing a space um, also needs to happen as fast as possible. If Flow touches the space before we have signed our name on the dotted line, uh, inventory takes over right afterwards where every day that we waste is no tells dollar to waste. Mm -hmm. So um, being able to work faster the second we take over is our great advantage. I, I think back to those classic Case, business school cases of what it means to be gap that predicts what's going to be popular 12 months from now and then can't change its mind the whole right, time. Right, back in the day before fast fashion and right. <laughs> and then fast fashion that people came along. And like, yeah. what was gap with their whole big supply chain and 12 month process and all these people who are like used to this process? What were they supposed to do when fast fashion arrived? Like, how are they supposed to adapt? And, and the reality is, you just, it's nearly impossible at that point. 
and what Notel can do versus, you know, other players in the industry that might take years to think through something and years to plan it. And that is normal. Notel, um, through like the combination of both people and these apps, like an inventory and a flow and an atlas, can, can change courses in a matter of weeks, which is just, it's just unbelievable to, to move that fast. Not because we need to change that often, but because we like, we, we, sprint at that speed in the actual normal course of, of action. So um, yeah, I mean, that's speed's been a really tool. fun. Speed's a tool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so speed's a tool. So, I mean, for the clarity of our reference there on fast fashion, the brands like Zara, I guess, and H&M, mm -hmm. somehow they got their supply chain so that like designers could like come up with a sketch and it would be in stores around the world in two to four weeks or something. And they could be responding to like some crazy shark dancing in the Super Bowl or something that Taylor Swift wore. And all of a sudden, you know, it's available for purchase in stores, whereas Gap was on this super lengthy yeah. time horizon where they're like, yeah. well, next year we think like kind of leather is going to be a thing. And they show up with a bunch of yeah. leather pants and whatever. And, and Zara isn't erratic. It's not only Taylor Swift and sharks from the Super Bowl. Like they do stripes and pinstripes and polka dots that way as well. They just say, look, we have, one, we have one mode and that's fast. And so then when you need agility, to us, it's the same thing as normal. It's just another thing that's fast. And I think that's kind of where, like, I, I love that Notel is. Notel is very fast. And so when you want agility, you're not saying invent speed where none had existed. You're saying, no, just the next thing that you're normally going to do, which will also be fast, it's now going to be slightly different because the market shifted and there's you know more demand or more supply or different tastes or different style or whatever um so that's 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 easy, when you joined like enabled when that. you joined uh you guys were like 15 people something like that 20 i forget the exact number like, I mean, you have a, a big operation in india with 30 40 yeah. uh data ops people but maybe in the u.s between uh sdrs and sales and engineering it was maybe 15 or 20 is that about right yep yep and how many were we it was December 2017, I remember, when we started talking, and we probably 55. got it sorted out. The, our company was only 55. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, I, I remember, because I walked around the office, and I met everyone in one day. <laughs> that would have been uh, Madison Avenue and 60th Street? Yeah. HQ yeah, number, like, great. three or four or something for us? That's, like, two or three HQs yeah. ago. That is amazing. I actually hadn't thought about it through that lens. Uh, so you were a third of, of the Notel people count on the day that you guys started. Yeah, I mean, uh, I remember, so, so we, we loved Notel's business model and did not love 42.4's business model. 42.4's was making money off of advertising, which was uh, not pleasant. People intensive because we have this whole data team. And I was like, we're taking 55 people with our U.S. operations plus our India operations in order to sell some ads. And you guys are taking 55 people in order to put, like, thousands of people in an office and actually service them and, like, make them happy. And I was like, I want to do that. Uh, and that has played out well because, you know, Notel is nowhere near 55 people anymore. But the same, like, ratio of number of people uh, in the company to number of people served, I bet it's pretty consistent. It's a, it's a hugely leveraged uh, business to like serve that many people with this many dollars at stake and this important, it's such a right. small team. Yeah, right. I mean, like the, the entire American advertising market's 100 billion. The New York office market is 100 billion a year. And I think from our current coverage in the 15 or 16 cities where we're at, we're probably addressing more than a trillion of total office spend just in those cities, I think. And, and, you know, when you, when, when we, when we got together, while we might've been 55 people or something, we were already in the tens of millions and now we're hundreds and hundreds of millions uh, of revenue. Like the business is a lot bigger in a short time in two years. And, and I guess you're right. Yeah. We were at less than a hundred total and, uh, you know, we're bigger now. We're maybe four or five times bigger. And, and, and that's kind of the, that's the trigger point, right? So our, our topic uh, that I wanted to explore with you a little bit is peacetime and wartime. And uh, I think w when you joined, we were still so early, still so small. We 
had this thing that was really starting to work. And I think you and I saw how it could work better together, but it was starting to work. And I don't think anybody thought we'd get a heck of a lot farther than that. I mean, it sort of seemed like it was going to do well, but there was this huge, impossibly unassailable rival, right? The co-working guys. Mm -hmm. Uh, there was a real estate industry that was still kind of juries out on the idea of, of Agile HQs, Flex, whatever. They're still kind of debating it. We were still sort of begging to get into, into properties. I think at that moment, we had just started operating in San Francisco. So we might have had a team of a handful of people that were starting to work on San Francisco. I don't think we were even open. Uh, maybe we had our first location. We were basically a New York business. And we were a tiny fraction of the size of the famous giant of co-working. And there were a bunch of other like random co-working guys floating around that all sort of seemed either our size or, or maybe even bigger that had been around for seven years, eight years. And we'd been at it for like a year or two. It was really easy back then to um, feel like we were taking on the world and everything was at stake every day. It was wartime. It was wartime. There was no time to waste back then it it was wartime not just in that there was no time to waste because i because there has always been no time to waste it was wartime in that um uh we could change everything almost instantly because we had to and because that's the way we were used to operating and it needed it. I mean, Notel was, in those days, a small number of large companies and a bunch of small companies. And most things were kind of working or probably not working very well. And like not, it, it wasn't like well-oiled machine, this thing is fucking crushing it. It was um, fires everywhere. And when there are fires everywhere, just like the whole group needs to put out the fire. And everyone's cool with that. And so it wasn't yet scaling mode for, for as, uh, uh, as we would get into later. It was really, this thing's super important. We can tell it's important. We can tell it's going to work. But we just can't stop tripping over our feet because there's so many things to get right to make it work. And I just looked around and everyone I met, uh, in the, like I was, I was first getting, getting through to the company, everyone I met was working on something crucial and important and was clearly understanding that they were doing whatever they could to survive that day and we'll make it better the next day. Yeah. They'd be it, was, it, was, it was exhilarating. It was like, <laughs> it was like really like everyone knew what needed to be done because it was freaking obvious right in front of you. There's a lot to be done. Yeah. Right. So problems always, actually even today, I think probably everybody walks into the office and has a lot of things that they think are wrong and they're really important and from all the different perspectives of all the different people there's probably different weightings on whether things are easy or or not easy but somewhere probably at the end of last year we started getting big enough so end of 2018 we we start getting big enough uh we're in a lot of different cities there's lots of people there's lots of revenue the customers are starting to be like these huge global companies and there starts to be a little bit of a of, of a drive to tidy up, systematize, organize what we're, what we're already doing. Like we had done so many hacks and spreadsheets and improvised decisions that we needed to figure out what they all were, write them all down, edit them for clarity, revise them to match different circumstances and then deploy them into since January, we've, I think we've launched 11 or 12 cities. I mean, we, we probably opened the year, with uh, a tiny business in San Francisco, a meaningful business in New York, uh, a nascent business in London. And that was kind of it in January. Uh, we were getting ready to complete the acquisition of uh, the French business, which was going to be a, a big chunk. And they themselves were a super entrepreneurial, scrappy operation for cities. Uh, we had the Berlin outpost with just one location. It wasn't really uh, a, a hotel yet. And since that time, we have added, let's see, Amsterdam and Dublin, um, Frankfurt, uh, Toronto, Boston, Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, Rio de Janeiro, uh, Sao Paulo, and we're up and running in uh, Japan and India and haven't yet uh, announced our stuff there. 
all those cities the last nine or 10 months. And meanwhile, in the cities that we're operating in, some of the cities were like 50 times bigger, right? I mean, San Francisco has scaled massively. New York is multiples of where it was. London is multiples larger. The Paris business is multiples larger. Like we have gotten, we, we started with a meaningful business that seemed super scrappy and was about to go through another period of broad expansion and deepening. Um, and we did a little, I, I would say that, that we, we switched into the kind of, into the, into this, uh, into more of a peacetime mode. The business was working. We were beating the other guy. It was clear. We just, every, every week we would add big chunks of revenue. We'd just keep growing. And, uh, we were doing like a system building thing. Yeah. We integrating, I, I organizing, I, norming. I, I think sometimes I might piss people off by calling that period of time peacetime mode because it felt, it felt like wartime mode. If you think wartime mode equals things like the word, like it's hard and fast paced and you're working your ass off and late nights and weekends and whatever it takes to get things done and mistakes have been made and, you know, you're sprinting. Like if you think wartime means sprinting, it felt like sprinting. But, but no, I, I thought that was peacetime mode because it was a focus on systems building uh, finding uniformity, finding automation, creating policies and procedures. And there's nothing, that's not bad, um, but it's different. And it's a step that was necessary. There's no way to go from one big market and two tiny rounds to zero markets to uh, 10 plus markets across countries. There's no way to do that without good systems. So you have to have these moments of peacetime mode. And I thought we did lots of great stuff during that time that like got new markets with new people and 80% of the company that's here today wasn't there then. So all those people had to come into a non-dysfunctional company and like all those systems made it functional. Um, right. But, people have to like be found, be hired, be trained. They have to learn what they're doing. They have to find their way into the organization and then improve on the stuff that they were uh, working on. We, we don't want to repeat the mistakes of the past, right? And we have seen it tangibly. Our markets are scaling faster to, to big revenue numbers than the previous cohorts. When I look back on the stuff we did in the early days of wartime, the, the earliest properties in year one, year two, they're way worse than the newest property. Like we're getting so much better on the way we acquire market and sell and create margin out of the stuff. Like the, the, the system building has been hugely productive and valuable. Yeah. And uh, people need the opportunity to do their best work. And one of the things system building does is it allows an individual to come in. They don't have to be a founder. They don't have to like be used to the craziness of wartime mode. They can just come in and do their best work, knowing that the system around them works. Um, and in wartime mode, you don't get to have that little assumption. You don't get to assume the system will work. In wartime mode, you need to be able to say, I may only have like my one tiny vantage point on the company. I'm not the CEO. I'm not on the board. I'm not even in the senior group, but I, I have a voice that may unlock this whole thing. And I got to get it out there because maybe the whole armada is supposed to change directions. And that is like at the heart of, of wartime mode, it's, it's about changing directions. You've got to like the agility comes back. And um, one of the things wartime mode really requires is, uh, closing the door on certain parts of the previous chapter, which, you know, in like, you know, in my world, which is always uses code as a thing it touches, code gets deleted during wartime mode. Code gets added to during peacetime mode, but code gets deleted because mistakes were made in the past or a new solution is needed or more efficiency was possible or whatever, but code gets deleted. And um, in wartime mode now, like, we're focused on not just expanding what we did before, but like changing things. Yeah, it's super fascinating. I mean, so you and I were talking recently um, and uh, you were kind of making this observation, sort of the, the, the er version of this observation. And um, I was like, you know, it is so helpful to hear how you feel it and how you see it sitting a little bit from a vantage point where you're not like in front of a customer every day. You're not like managing to a weekly uh, sales number or a, a, some kind of margin creation thing. Like, you know, you're working on things that have a somewhat lower, um, lower twitch. Like they're, they're, they're a little bit of a longer uh, cycle time and having you observe some of the behaviors around the company and, and, and the stuff that we've been doing in the first nine months, 10 months of this year, it was so interesting. And then, and, and I'm like, 
you know, Jason, think about it. And so you, you send me this memo and there are four or five ideas in this memo. And I think they're really cool. And I want to explore them a little bit with you. And one of your observations was this wartime peacetime metaphor may be similar to the co-optition federalism metaphor. So wartime peacetime, we've been talking about how those things might be different. And part of why I like the language of wartime is because there is a lot of um, history and writing and strategy and theory about all the different kind of situations people find themselves in over time and, you know, in various offices around the world, you have all these like Napoleon paintings and stuff. And, and part of the reason Napoleon is there is because he, he was, um, he, he's a historically significant figure on this exact topic of the, the moment of, of decisive action, how the planning and the strategy comes to bear on the execution of tactics on walking the ground of the, of the battle the night before and making decisions about how the horses and troops and artillery will move and, 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 and seeing a moment, the exact moment when a decision should be made. And I think later, um, one of the, the German uh, theorists in the, in, during the middle of the 19th century, Clausewitz, writes about Napoleon, and he, he talks about this idea that um, what Napoleon proves and what should be a practice in, in wartime is while planning is necessary, you, you dispense the plan immediately. The battle is not won at the green table. It's, it's won by the officer in the field. And every person in the company is essentially an officer in the field on the topic that they're working on. And so you're working with a supplier, you're trying to figure out what to do with a customer, you're um, managing a, a payment schedule with some vendor, whatever. And those are places where you're the officer in the field. There's not going to be a well-defined playbook for every situation. And if you expect one, um, then, you, then you, you might as well be working in a public library. This company is not like that. There, there is so much change, so much adversity, and so much risk. That's the wartime and the peacetime metaphor. But then you were connecting it to this like federalism thing. And I wonder if you want to talk a little bit about federalism, because it's a little bit about like HQ, the markets, where the action is, the um, coordination between markets, which one is going faster, who's getting resources to grow more, um, what is life like in a market? It's more like more like wartime, you say. Uh, and what is life like at HQ? It's more like peacetime, uh, yeah. you said. It's, um, it, yeah, so... The, the federalism argument is, you know, that's like really simple. Like a lot of people understand it. And it's to say that the states are, uh, the states by there being many of them are an engine of innovation simply because many states will try many things. And right. In the case the of the American government, this is often taught about and talked about in, in right. like American political um, theory, right? Yeah. But, but it's also really interesting when you look at it just from a size perspective, um, simply by being smaller, you do things differently. So you know, as one of, one of the examples of how we work, uh, you need to find spaces to lease and you're hoping that there's going to be customers who want that exact space. Now, this is a guess of some sort. If you lease a space in January and then you don't find the customer until August, there's eight months in between there. It's a guess. You're just trying to predict. And frankly, everyone in real estate tries to predict. But what if you lease the space in January because you know who the tenant's going to be in February because you've already toured them through it. And what if the day that that lease gets signed, you've already done all the prep work for that tenant? And what if that tenant's total expansion of work that's going to be necessary has now been condensed from this eight-month period actually down to like a month and a half? And I just had this wonderful advantage point of being in San Francisco at a moment in time when I saw it happen. And it didn't happen just once, it happened twice, and then a third time, and then a fourth time. And it happened not just on small deals, it happened on the biggest deals all of Notel's ever done. And I was sitting there, February, March, watching these deals cross the finish line. And I was like, oh my God, we're not getting good at predicting. We are seeing the whole hand play out and then making a bet. This is freaking amazing. And it wasn't because the market was so hot or the people were so smart or whatever it was because the team was small and the team were just all sitting in the same room together and i well, thought the, the I people were definitely great the people were definitely great yeah yeah but they had an advantage they all sat in the same room and you know when you're and i was like that's a startup that's a startup and so they were actually changing everything about what they do in the playbook that had been handed to them and i just wondered i wonder if this is what notel was like in the beginning days and the answer when I just started asking a bunch of people is, yep, all the original senior people 
this is what they did is they were just all in the same room solving problems together when we got big at hq we all these senior people they can barely schedule time to be in the same room together and then definitely their people their departments individually are bigger than all of Notel used to be and bigger than all of San Francisco. So there's now, there's, there's just an armada instead of a single ship. And um, so that was like my, my first inkling. Like there's something special now about what we overall as Notel have in these markets in that we still have small groups and small groups can do things faster, differently, not necessarily better, but if there's going to be something brand new that's going to be figured out, it's just easier to do it with a small group. Yeah, and and, and I guess cool. in, and and the and the inverse of that is, uh, HQ is a big org. Uh, I think the HQ part of the New York office might be two hundred people, maybe something mm-hmm. like that. At the big org, its jobs are also uh, slower twitch kind of jobs. Like if you think sprinting and marathoning are different things, the the HQ projects are all things that are like one quarter one year in the future um whereas when you're sitting at the market desk in in berlin it's like i have these five customers who need something now i have these five buildings that i'm working on now let's get it all sorted today uh whereas the hq stuff uh does travel through a a lengthier uh sequence of steps and 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 Mm -hmm. you're right it is impaired by the total scale by the total size so many people to inform i remember these days of of being in Y Combinator and in Y Combinator, there's like one little piece of advice. It's like kind of the whole thing. And that is in any particular week, let's talk about the thing that's most important and try to solve it by next week so we can move on. Mm. And, and that, that like little thing of we're going to focus on the most important thing and you get one week, it changes everything. Cause now you're not trying to do 14 things. Well, great. You're actually saying I'm going to ignore 13 of them and just do one. And uh, the, the week is the deadline. And so one of these things Paul Graham used to say was, I have one thing that I know as like a twitch that tells me a company's not going to do well. And it's, um, it's when I hear the same thing week after week. Mm. Like I just, I like, someone comes to me and they say, this is their problem. And I feel like I've heard that before. And I realized I heard it from them and it was the week before. <laughs> and I just know those companies just don't work out very well. And I was like, oh, that's like really powerful. Basically, the new companies invent new problems all the time by by fixing the ones that were previously the biggest thing and moving on. And the new problems are either because they moved on to the next thing to to tackle or they're now growing so fast, they will create new problems for themselves. And so working on that daily or weekly cadence is very different from systems building, which needs, you know, roadmaps and lots of people and alignment and everyone rowing in the same direction. It's just it's a a, you're right. It's a very different twitch of the muscle. It's a long Mm -hmm. twitch muscle. And then, so you were developing that idea, and you give me like another idea, which was uh, the stages notion. It's kind of a classical notion of of uh, company life cycle, and <clears throat> it kind of maps to the, the notion of wartime, actually, because like the first few stages in the life of a company when you're real small, first of all, you're just you just you know you're just barely alive, right? <laughs> Existence and survival are kind of your only uh, goals at any given time. Uh, in the early days, you're you're not in business actually you're you're about to go out of business is is how it is in the early going and and that does feel like wartime everything's urgent everything's critical you're toast you got to solve it now otherwise you're, you just won't be around you don't have permission to be there in the next step and there is a moment um where you achieve success which i suppose is the the third stage um and things start changing uh when you are successful a lot of things change and um and, and I think that's what you were pointing to. So you're like, well, you know, some of these markets barely have permission to exist. You know, they're not even sure uh, what what's possible. They've got limited resources, not a lot of money. They got to make something happen. No one's helping them. They're just on their own. It feels like a startup. And then back at headquarters, you have some folks who actually probably a lot of folks that joined a company because it was successful, not in order to make it successful. I think it's probably true for a lot of folks that joined the company in the last year that they felt like they were walking into a spot that was safe, secure, the kind of place you want to go after your sterling career, having done ABC, wonderful universities and job experience and whatnot. And that, um, that, that, you might that, come with a different that mindset. Be, 
that, that may be our bias as startup people. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think people who joined Notel were, were still, even those that joined during some period of, of, of peacetime the first half of this year, I, I think it was still exhilarating and exciting uh, and even risky compared to maybe some you know, five, 10,000 person company or some 25 year old company that they joined that they were at before. Um, but they are, uh, they may have come thinking that my job is to take this road that already exists and pave it smoother mm-hmm. and not to get the machete out to go find a different path because this road's not as good as we thought it was, but the one over there could be. And, um, once you get out into the jungle and you've got the machete with you and your job is to not only build the fa- build the path, but find it as well, uh, it changes you. It just, it just does. All of a sudden you realize that when you see a thing that seems like it's not that good, you can just speak up. And so I look at like these really tiny things in the company, for instance, uh, customers ask a request and there's like a way we process these requests because we get lots of them. And the people who know those systems the best are the people who use it all day long. They're right on the ground. They work with our customers. If you are working at a 10,000 person company and you're unhappy with the like, you know, various pieces of software you use to handle customer support requests, like good luck getting change. You're like so far from the wrong, from the person who's going to help you change it. This is never going to happen. You should really, if you're unhappy doing that, you should go find a new company to work at rather than think you're going to fix it. But right now, today, in wartime mode, if someone's dealing with some customer support piece of software and they want to change, you better believe everyone wants to know because it, they actually will change it. And that like uh, amplification of an individual's voice is a reflection of someone who just got off the road building uh, mindset and got into the get out my own machete mindset. And I think there's a fear it will lead to everyone thrashing about the jungle in like random directions mm-hmm. and i don't know maybe there's some warranting to that fear but actually i i don't think it's true i think what actually occurs is um people who go down bad paths quickly stop and go back to the safety of the road mm-hmm. uh, i think what happens is you you waste a few cycles going in the wrong path but then someone figures out a new path mm-hmm. um, and, and, and the new path really thing is matters. the payoff. I mean, on, on the, the cost is the waste, but the payoff is is the innovation. It's the right answer. Yeah. And the, the so one that you, you might never have found like, at the green table. You look at this little thing I was watching in San Francisco, and I didn't come up with the idea. I, I wasn't even att- attached to it. I was just an observer. I'm not, not I'm, I'm an HQ function. Uh, I was just watching it. But they were picking the customers before they signed the lease. And it was just so amazing to see the different sets of processes. And, you know, now we call this match and we're building systems to support it. But that path that they went down with their machetes, we may expand that path into a highway. It's so freaking important. Like that oh, yeah, may it's be. Huge. It's huge. Yeah, it, we, it, wouldn't have, we wouldn't have found it. We wouldn't have found it. Found it. And it's, yeah. it was not inevitable to find it. it. It took someone out there with a machete. And I remember on the, the first deal where they really did it right and they put together like a little two slide PowerPoint about it to explain it. I was like, this thing is really big guys. This is really big. Uh, it is good. And, it know, is good. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. I, I think it's really good. You, uh, in your memo to me elaborated this notion a little bit further and you use the kind of like you know federal uh you know the kind of like he- like like the washington dc versus the states analogy and you applied it the way we've been talking about here and then and then you go on and then you're like well the values that we espouse and we put them on the wall and we believe in them we do them we talk about them you know like get uncomfortable get uncomfortable is not a a peacetime value get uncomfortable is like you're going to think it's weird that three different markets or two different teams are working on the same thing in different ways. Um, that's uncomfortable. And we're going to encourage you to fly your own flag. We're going to encourage you to focus on the outcome, not just a tidy process. The process must yield some outcome. It's, it's going to be about getting somewhere. Um, so I think you were correct, actually, that the the values that we espouse are wartime values. And then I think in that in that note, you you asked me the question. You're like, well, 
should we change them? Yes, I freaking love our values. I, I don't know how many people do. I think it'd be a really interesting like people op style survey to say, do you love our values? But I love them. Our values are wartime values. They're startup values. They're innovation values. And I believe they are values we can hold on to until the finish line. And that finish line could be 30 years from now. We could be a trillion dollar company and these could still be our values. But values are something uh, it takes some early people, including the leader, to say, and then it takes the organization to decide that they're going to have it resonate with them, that they're going to espouse it, that they chose to join the company because of it, that they recruited more people because of it, that they used them in individual decision-making things because of it. And so the res whether the values resonate with the whole org, I think, is a big question mark. And it's yeah, that's really interesting. Soon. I am curious. I mean, they sound good. I think they're popular, um, the sense I get, and, and we really should interrogate this. I, I'm so curious to do it now that you mention it. I mean, they sound good, right? Like, where is it engraved? I mean, who who doesn't love this, like, question orthodoxy notion? But but do people want to deal with the consequences of being and questioned? I, I, you know, you're in charge I of global brand. I think I would, I, I would say... <laughs> I would say the values have resonated if it were very apparent that they had. And, and ways that it would be apparent is in the middle of some heated discussion, someone brings up a value to help decide the answer and everyone agrees we should err on the side of the value. So for instance, someone in LA working on a mega deal needs to do things differently because it's just going to take doing things differently to get this particular deal done. And then someone just not like the senior leader making the final decision, but anyone in the thread of conversation would say, outcome not process team on the ground. If you get it done, we'll fix the process later, but outcome not process. Or yeah. they would say, where is it engraved? You might have to do things differently just so you know, if you screw up because you did things differently, that's not what's gonna get you called out because where is it engraved gave you the right to go try things differently because you felt like you had to. And to expect you're always gonna get it right on the first time, no way, there's no way we could, but where is it engraved said you should think first, will it work? Because if it's not gonna work, it doesn't matter what someone uh, in HQ is telling you, you need to speak up. You can't let it go on. You can't go down that road when you thought there was a different path. And so that's, that we're, that's where we will be when it's obviously resonating. But I yeah, think I agree with right now, right now we're in a state where we also want, we just, we as humans, <laughs> just normal people, we want everyone to be working well together and aligned. And that alignment is not the same as get uncomfortable. Yeah. Getting uncomfortable is tough. It's people who disagree. Mm -hmm. um, I have a wartime uh, story to offer you. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, we, we've been talking about what phase of World War II we might be in. <laughs> we have, really? <laughs> or maybe yeah, so this, was, this was part of the thread of what phase. Sure. Of World Trevor War II. had all these ingenious things about uh, yeah, landing in Normandy like and marching to Berlin. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, I happen to be pretty obsessed with World War II, <laughs> like the last year or so. Um, and I just wanted to bring up uh, a construction analogy of World War II. Um, are you aware of the story of the mulberries? No, tell me. Awesome. So, uh, 1915, Winston Churchill in World War I, because he's in Britain, he thinks of, of what it means to not have uh, a military-grade pier at his own disposal wherever he's going. And so he sketches out an idea of what it would take to do uh, a transportable pier to build an old military port. Uh, and then he like files it away somewhere. And then 1940, 41 comes around and the Atlantic wall was created where, where basically the Nazis said uh, to be invaded in Europe, you will have to have a military level port. And so we don't need to protect all of the thousands of of you know kilometers of 
uh, Europe, we, we, we actually just need to protect the ports because you can't invade us if you can't get your big ships in. And so they built the Atlantic Wall kind of everywhere, but mostly at the ports. And we, the Allies, had a couple of fights where we tried to get after a port and we got demolished. There was no way we were taking over a real military-grade port. Like Lehigh or whatever. Yeah. And so Winston Churchill bought out, brought out this like little idea he'd had 25 years ago that seemed crazy at the time and was still crazy now. And he said, I want a transportable port. I have to have one. There's no point. All of D-Day, the whole thing was 200,000 troops, which is, you know, nothing. The whole point of D-Day was the port. The port is what allowed millions of troops with tanks to get across. Patton didn't arrive on D-Day. Patton with his army that would eventually fight and take over all the way into Berlin came through with millions of troops and tens of millions of tons through a port. And those were the mulberries. And he set apart, Winston Churchill and Eisenhower are working together. They said, we're going to have to have transportable ports. It's never been done. They need to be something that can move at the speed of D-Day and be installed that fast. And to get it done, they had this little thing. They said, this is so important and it's so uncertain how to get it done. Let's have two teams build it, build it separately, share what they learn, but not force each other to do it the same way in both. We will build two ports with the hope that one makes it. Amazing. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah, that's really cool. <laughs> so two separate places, two separate teams, two separate philosophies. They set around building it and they, and both came and it was, you know, Mulberry A and Mulberry B. And they actually got both across. And, you know, D-Day is its own story. And we like, we, we, there was all the sacrifice and we, we, you know, all this, um, strategy and tactics that went into it, but we got the beach and we had this period of time in order to establish the mulberry supports. And wouldn't the luck have it? But June 1944, we've 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 got our tiny, tiny, tiny toehold on Europe, and a storm comes along. It's like a once a generation storm, and it destroys one of the mulberries. The whole thing totally unusable. All oh, yeah. those people that like did D-Day, you know, there are four total beaches of D-Day and two beaches for each mulberry. Um, all those people on two of those beaches, their mulberry was destroyed and th there was no point to it without the mulberry. And the Incredible. other one lasted for the, all of the millions of troops since the only one we actually used. Had we done just one, we wouldn't have made it. That's amazing. So there was the Omaha Beach and Gold Beach or whatever and the one that the Americans always, you know, all the movies are about Omaha and stuff. I guess that was, was the one the, that was damaged. It was the British beach that where, where the, the mulberry lasted. Um, <laughs> oh no. Uh, That's I know, awesome. I know. So Such a cool story. And, you know, Such a cool story. Uh, but, but what I love is like Winston Churchill said at this point, you know, it, it's going to be duplicative work, but our pace of innovation and how much it matters means I'd rather have two separate teams. And this is resource deprived, talent deprived britain as they're getting right. bombarded and he's still like i need the innovation which means i need two different attempts in case one figures out something differently yeah it's a, great example. Was, it's a great example it's a great example and, and it's i mean it's sort of a cultural topic that depending on someone's you know personal experience and mindset and attitudes and habits like you often find you have chaos people and control people and and the process excellence that comes from control people is super valuable, but often their bias is against duplication. And then the chaos people almost irrationally prefer duplication, you know, maybe more often than they ought to. And, and, it, and it all seems wasteful, but as, as strategies that they, that they are different and, and complementary. So the, the memo though, so the memo where it gets to the one that you crafted, which is the, the, um, the code hook that we're hanging our conversation on here is where it gets to is, um, and it's ironic. Okay, so because I think you wrote it uh, September fifteenth or sixteenth, uh, two thousand nineteen. It's about, I guess, six weeks ago, and um, it's only a few days later that that Adam Newman resigns from from WeWork, right? So you you mm -hmm. when you write the thing, that co-working company is not doing great, but probably all of us think it's still going to end up being public. We had always set ourselves up with our different, better idea. We were rolling, we were kicking ass. It's 2019 and, and we're just 
eating our market at the pace at which we can digest it. And we are very bold and we're starting to get big, but still there's these other guys that are way bigger than us. And while we were skeptical about some of the hocus pocus, we figured, all right, at least they'll sort of get out there and then we'll establish our identity over time in counterpoint to theirs, we will be the only other large player in the world. And it won't be long, we'll probably end up being bigger than them, but let's be humble in the meanwhile, let's carry on. And the, the, the comment that you make in that memo, while I think that world was still the case, the comment you make is, well, you know, to have wartime, you kind of need a mortal enemy. And we kind of don't have one. Like, we're just fine. Like, everything's just fine. We're just, like, cruising. There's just nothing to worry us. They'll sort of get out there, and they'll just keep doing what they're doing, and they suck at it, and we'll just beat them. There's nothing, there is no feeling of a need to change internally. It feels like the uh, success is inevitable. Uh, we're, um, we're sitting in the imperial capital, yeah, and, and our troops are we, heading off. And, and not even, like, a, you know, confidence versus humility type, mindset like we literally aren't losing deals to them the only mm. deals on both the supply side and demand side we're losing are ones where we fail to execute on it in the terms of supply and ones where we don't find a solution for our customer but what we're not doing is going up head to head all the time and losing yeah like i mean we're doing great work like, and we're winning almost all the like time like we're not even really going head to head with anyone and when you're not going yeah. to head to head you don't know whether you could have done better yeah, well, and then the places where we, I think, probably in the year before the the disaster for those dudes, um, if if there was ever a thing that we would have needed to bring more iron to the fight, we would have just wanted to be bigger. So we were just doing that. Let's get bigger. Right. If they had more properties than us or whatever, occasionally maybe, or, or you know, whatever, they would offer huge discounts and we'd walk away from that stuff. But we were just winning and we were totally satisfied and we've been growing so well. And in a way, the existence of the rival who was no no threat, had us in a calm mood. Now, the irony, I think, of the timing of, the, of that email and the reason why we're talking now is just days pass. The guy is out. The company enters, enters some kind of free fall. It's not over yet. I mean, we've spoken or in, you know, internally and in public about our views about what will um, unfold in the coming months. And there's going to be a lot more trouble as, as those folks figure out how they're going to write the ship and steady it. But they're certainly not going to be in growth mode. They're certainly not going to be aggressive. We're not going to meet them at the, at, at the competitive market. They're, they're mostly co-working and they will return to, I think, virtually all co-working. And it has left us in a spot where, the, where we are the only global player that does an enterprise Agile HQ thing. Like flexible office for enterprise, there's just no one else playing on that, on that field with us. And you might think that that creates the permanent peacetime, but it doesn't. That is, that is, that is what you and I were discussing uh, before we got into this conversation. Actually, the reverse has happened, and this is a beautiful and amazing thing. We have been um, shaken out of our malaise that we should just do this stuff the way we ought to do it, and all of a sudden we're thinking, using some of the, the lyrical language that we've used earlier, it's not a marathon, it's a triathlon. And in fact, the events of the last few weeks are the end of the swim. The swim is over now, it's a different race, and, and this race is going to be about leverage, we're going to be riding, and we're going to change the whole business. We're going to change everything. It's wartime. And, and we're just cool with, we'll change ourselves in the process. Like my, my observation earlier today to you was cross-departmental, tough-to-figure-out pathways forward, machete-type work that nine months ago to engage in it would have taken six months or just probably not happened if it was too much cross-departmental maneuvering of people to figure out. That's where we were when we were scaling peacetime mode was automation alignment, no dupe, no dupe work was so important that a couple of quarters was just an okay time frame. Right now, for the last you know four weeks or so, so four weeks worth of data on this, I see things happening in two weeks that involve four different departments that affect 
70 different people across them that are happening in two to three weeks total with really what's what's changed is the metrics of now soon later have changed now used to mean this month soon this quarter and later is two quarters plus now now soon later means now is it happens the same week we talk about it soon means what you'll have up and running by next week and later means we'll give you to, towards the end of the month and I, that means our our like speed now we're fast fashion again now we're like we're moving really fast so we're not just saying we'll be agile for agile's sake we're saying we're fast and so that just happened i can feel it i can see it i can give you six different examples and everyone who maybe felt like we were in war mode six months ago if you want to say that you would need to be able to say we're in more wartime mode now so like definitely like we, we just turned it up to an 11. Yeah, it's it's a thrill. I mean, because as we've been comparing notes on this, I have my own handful of examples. Senior leaders rotating around, departmental functions combining, you know, projects being uh, reconceived or something's being launched much earlier. Like, it's 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 all over the place. And we're going to do a bunch more of it. There's some strategy type stuff that we'll talk about just when we're together as just a private no-tell group. But that strategy stuff is what we want this mindset to help us accomplish. So if the swim is over and now it's time for the ride, every commitment we had, every assumption that was in our normal mode of business before this thing happened, we have the opportunity to uh, reinvestigate it, to renegotiate it, to reconsider it, to reinvent it. And it's, it's far wider. I mean, you might think it's obvious that we take properties. Let's change how we do that. We sell to customers. Let's change how we do that. Well, then it's actually a lot more stuff. It's uh, it's vendors and the way the different teams are organized and who does what and uh, how, how how you know what kind of metrics we even use on it. We might have considered certain metrics and maybe the maybe our goals are actually very different now. We're going to change the balance of the equations that are at the core of the whole business because now we have the opportunity. So that's one big thing. Uh, the strategy is open to reevaluation and reinvention and this this mindset is what we're going to use for that the second one is <clears throat> we're kind of the, the market leader now i mean it's a little pre premature to say it that way but we are certainly the most active the most um uh solid operation that's doing this thing that everybody wants and we're in all the places like we are an extremely high profile and relevant company now and the expectations and the and and the 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 need to do business with us has increased for some folks in our company um it's going to be tough because folks are are nervous about what they used to do with the other company and if they're dealing with us now they're they're going to have some anxieties there and there's an, another new thing that they actually expect us to act like like leaders in the market instead of a scrappy uh challenger in the market and so for a lot of us it's gonna we, we are gonna have to learn to behave differently we may find partners or vendors or others being maybe more aggressive with us maybe super pushy on stuff maybe, things might change a little bit we're gonna have to learn a little bit about that this this role of of the leader in the market and change how we uh, operate um and I, I think a third thing that is part of this transition but it's not a wartime peacetime analogy it's Rather that over these last three or four years, back in the old days when you and me, Jason, were just in a room and doing stuff, basically all the important issues would just come to my desk. You know, we'd be in a meeting and a handful of people would, would be able to sort it all out. Now we actually have a very broad circle of leaders that make contact with other very important stakeholders around the company. Uh, we have folks that are relatively early in their business career. Um, who on our behalf are doing multi-million dollar deals with customers, with owners, with suppliers, they're architecting uh, product schemes that are going to have lots of investment. Our executives, and these guys are our leaders, there's, there's a lot of them, and they, they represent us with these outside stakeholders. They actually have much larger demands on them now than they ever had in the past. They're going to get contact with folks with random idea pitches. They're trying to sell us a company. Somebody wants us to accelerate some deal we're working on with them, whatever. And these are new experiences for those folks. And in the context of the former two points, 
that the swim is over, the competitor is gone, anxieties are high, they expect to sack the leader, this is going to be a really tricky period for a lot of our colleagues. So I'm, this is going to be a big mission of mine over the next few months. Uh, first, to register that indeed uh, it is wartime and that we will all be called to serve and that battles are not won from the green table, that whole family of ideas. That's going to be something that, that our colleagues are going, to, are, are going to be processing, I think, for a few months. I got my machete out. I'm ready. <laughs> Thank you very much for this Sunday evening session uh, of Hello, Hello. I think it's going to be a really good one. We're going to be talking a lot about it with our colleagues over the coming days. Maybe in the years to come, someone will listen to this episode and think, oh, what a weird moment in the life of Notel to have been a, uh, a fly on the wall for um, but I'm excited to share it with our colleagues for sure. Thanks, Jason. The pleasure as always.